This episode of the Fabulous Learning Nerds is sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTIs, counselor, and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Gotta love that famous quote from Cool Hand Luke, right? But you know, there's a lot of relevancy to the importance of good communication for ourselves and for our audience. That being said, a lot of skills that are necessary for effective communication aren't necessarily taught in schools. So how can we possibly get better? Luckily, today's guest, Mark Hirschberg, is here to help. Mark is the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Educated at MIT, Mark has spent his career launching and fixing new ventures at startups, Fortune 500s, and academia. Mark shares master communication strategies that will make you better both in your career and personal life. Today's show is a true wealth of knowledge, so get ready to learn some groovy stuff. Let's get started. They are the fabulous learning nerds. Because if you're tired of the old ways of getting it done, you've got the fabulous learning nerds. Scott, Dan, and Abby are making it fun. The best ideas that you've ever heard. So everybody spread the word. They're gonna keep your wheels turning. The fabulous learning nerds. Fabulous learning nerds. Oh yeah! Hey everybody, welcome back to another fantastic episode of your fabulous learning nerds. I'm your host, Scott Chudy, And with us, the co-host with the most, Dan Coonrod is here. Dan the man. Dan. Co-host with the most. Right. Like the most what? Um, fill in the blank. What what most do you want to have today? <laughs> Dan. Sorry, I gotta keep you on your toes. Uh what most do I want today? Man, that's tough. Um, I don't know if it's that tough. I mean, it's Thanksgiving week, right? So this is the week of excess. This is the week where we do lots of excess on Thursday. It's it's true. It's true. I, uh, you know, I'm not a big holiday person. I like Thanksgiving uh, because, you know, I'm a fat guy, so I like to eat. Um, But, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. I'm just not a big holiday person. Okay. All right. We're going to go ahead and I'm going to toss that question over to um, our other host, and we're going to find out what you have the most of. Ladies and gentlemen, you love her. Um, the Duchess of Design, Abby Dawson. Abby. Hey there. How's it going? Good. You know, I've never... Felt quite so close to Dan. That's exactly, that sounded like a conversation between me and my husband, him trying to give me some kind of compliment and me immediately going, I am suspicious of what you've said and I'm going to make you as uncomfortable as I am. <laughs> I mean, he's beautifully executed, Dan. I could tell your man has been married for quite some time. 
<laughs> and I heard, I understood before we started recording that you were having Turkey Day shenanigans. Turkey Day shenanigans. This is a Double good place as any event, right? I don't think my siblings listening to this podcast, so I can just say they're driving me nuts. But isn't that in the the spirit of the holiday? So I guess we're right on course. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, listen. And oh, by the way, Dan, you are uh, you are not a fat guy. I just want to make sure that everybody knows that you're Aww. not a fat guy. You're you're uh, you're quite svelte. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Let's go ahead and do that. I feel that. like that might be. Might be an exaggeration. Are you going to try and sell me something after this? I might. I cannot. I cannot confirm or deny that I might try to sell you something. Hey, folks, we're super excited about uh, this week because we have a special guest. He happens to be the author of the Career Toolkit, and uh, we're going to get to know him in a little segment we call "What's Your Deal." Hey, man, what's your deal, Mr. Mark Hirschberg? What's your deal? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on the show today. I have a kind of interesting background with a dual career. I came out of MIT in the 90s, started as a software engineer, but very quickly realized I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. I realized that to be in charge of the engineers, it wasn't just about being the best engineer I could be, but it also meant I had to develop other skills, leadership, communication, team building, negotiating, but no one ever taught me these skills. They're not in our standard educational planning. So I had to develop them in myself. And as I did so, I quickly realized these skills are not just for me, they are for everyone on the team from the most junior person. So I began training up my team. Shortly after I did this, MIT had gotten feedback from companies who say, we love your students, but there are skills we're looking for, not just in your students, in fact, not just in college students, in general, we want employees who have leadership, communication, negotiating, team building skills, but we can't find it. So MIT wanted to put together a program to teach these skills. Hearing about, it, I reached out and I said, I've been working on this in my own teams, how can I help? I helped create MIT's Career Success Accelerator. And then I've been teaching there for the past 20 years. So I've had my primary career as a CTO building startup companies, but a side career teaching at MIT and elsewhere for the past 20 years. And now, of course, the book and speaking and other activities. Wow, that, that, that's amazing. Um, my first thought about all of that, Mark, is like, this is a message and these are things that like everybody needs to hear. It wasn't too long ago that um, everybody in the educational system had this rude awakening of, oh my goodness, we're not ready for this, right? So we all woke up and went, we're, we, we're not prepared. We're not prepared to do virtual learning. We're not prepared to uh, be reaching our students, whether that's in education or in adult learning. And a lot of, you know, dare I say, audibles being called. And uh, one of my things was like, hey, now is the time, more than ever, that we need to really be thinking about um, how do we prepare not just, you know, our students, but ourselves to be successful? Because you're right, Mark. No, no one taught me this stuff. Like I, I had to learn it. And did I learn it right? I don't know. We're going to, we're going to learn all about that from you, which is fantastic. So, uh, that's super great. Alrighty. Um, so with that, let's go ahead and, um, without further ado, yeah, let's go ahead and dive right into it, uh, by getting into the topic of the week. All right, Mark, we, 
you're going to be talking, uh, amongst other things, like improving communication for um, our educators out there, correct? Absolutely, yes. It's a very important topic that we don't focus on enough. What are some things that people need to be considering when they think about their own communication skills? And maybe where we should start is, you know, why is it so important? Why is communication in our educational sector really important? Communication in general obviously drives society, right? It's one of the most fundamental things that we do. If you want to engage with someone other than yourself, you need to communicate. Now, let's consider the following scenario. Let's suppose I go over to Paris to give a talk. I unfortunately don't speak French, and so I'm going to have to speak in English, and everyone in that audience is going to hopefully know English. For some, they might be native English speakers as well, no problem, but for others, maybe they learned English in high school, but it's not really their strength. And so as they listen to me give my talk, they have to sit there and translate in their heads from English into French before they can process the information. There's some mental tax they have to pay in order to receive the information I'm giving. And that distracts them from being able to focus on the message itself, right? The more natural it is, the lower the tax. But if, it, if it's not natural for them, they're really so focused on what does that word mean and what's he saying, they can't even really absorb that message. And my job as a communicator is to convey that message as effectively as possible, but we have this barrier, this language. Now, we can't possibly learn every possible language out there, but even when we speak the same language, we have another barrier, which are the mental models that we keep in our heads. And when we don't actively try to overcome these mental models, we are putting a tax on the listener and hurting our ability to convey our message. Mark, I'm fascinated by this idea of mental models, and I'll, I'll tell you why. It's no surprise to me that when somebody found out that you were a software engineer who was a really good communicator, they got excited and were like, teach everyone what you know. <laughs> because my experience in business has been, um, I, I have moved into roles where I'm, I really enjoy project management because I like working with sales teams, software teams to create trainings. And part of what I love doing there is those conversations. And not everybody's good at those. And I imagine it goes back to those models that people have that they kind of have to work around. What are your thoughts about, about um, those interdisciplinary kind of shifts that people have to overcome? Well, interdisciplinary is a great term. There are many different ways we can look at the models in our heads, but one of them is interdisciplinary. Now, working in technology, we use lots of acronyms, lots of specific terms that have meaning to us, but people outside of our discipline don't understand that. I can say to another engineer, oh, right, we're having trouble scaling the database because of a sharding issue. He goes, sharding? What, what's that? That sounds like something very different <laughs> that you don't get in a database. But to every software engineer, you go, oh, right, sharding, I get. So I can't just say sharding and expect people to know it. I'm going to have to explain what that is and explain how it has to do with how we've divided up that data across the different databases, across the instances. So the analogy I might use is, well, it's kind of like having a phone book. And when your phone book gets too big, you have to break it up. And then if you have your phone book 
let's say alphabetical. You have the A phone book, the B phone book, the C phone book. Okay, I get. But the problem is everyone only wants to use the A phone book. And so now everyone's, oh, you've got the phone book. I can't use the phone book. Now I have to wait and you're slowing me down. Okay, I get what that is. And when I explain it, not using technical models, but models everyone can understand, everyone gets a phone book. Well, maybe maybe not uh, Gen Z, but most of us <laughs> get, uh, get phone book. Then, okay, you don't, I'm not charging that tax. You instantly get, and you're not saying, wait, what's a, what's a phone book and how does this work? You get the idea of lots of people are trying to use the same part of it at once. So the more I can shift into a discipline you understand, and that might be a general concept like phone books, or it might be specific to if I gave a finance analogy because you work in finance, the more I make it easy for you to understand because I've removed that barrier of translating from my domain to yours. You make that sound really easy. <laughs> what, I yeah. feel like there, there have to be a lot of steps that, get, that help people get there. It certainly, like any type of communication, comes with practice. And it begins by just recognizing we all have certain mental models that we ourselves carry. Those come from our thinking styles. They come from our own training, our experiences, even our background. I'm Jewish. In Jewish communities, I can drop in a Yiddish term or give a certain type of analogy that would be common in Jewish cultures. And everyone has their own, oh, in my culture, I can, I can do this, but also comes from a more formal training in a discipline or styles of thinking. So once you recognize, here are the modes that I have, here are the models I carry with me, here are some of the other models I've seen other people carry. And as I get to know you, what are the models you use and how can I learn more about it to translate into, it, into that? And admittedly, some of it comes from the fact that I have read accounting books for fun. I have taken marketing classes. I have poked my head around to other parts of companies to learn about how they work so I can start to understand their language, their models, their ways of thinking, and then I can start to translate into that. That's awesome. It, it's, I mean, you make it sound almost like, I don't want to say learning another language, like learning each individual person's language but I think I just said it, and so I'm going to stick by it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as bad as learning a whole language, but it is learning other, we'll call it mini languages, mini ways of thinking. And obviously you can't know a priori your style. We just met. I don't know all of your thinking styles. As we spend more time together, I can start to learn. And if I'm speaking to a large group, I might communicate the idea in more than one way so I can hit a broader audience knowing each way might resonate with a different part of the audience. So I like that example a lot. Um, a lot of my communication skills have come from one-on-one -on -one learnings. And so by that, I mean, um, I was taught interviewing skills by my father when I was a private investigator. That one-on-one -on -one communication is very different than the skills I learned when I was in sales. There were some things that translated in both fields, but primarily it was like one-on-one. -on -one. Um, large groups though, overcoming that gap of not being sure where everyone's starting from, um, I, that's, that's a different kind of challenge um, and, and really applicable to what we do um, when we create learnings for large groups that we don't necessarily interact with. 
very true. And usually if you're giving a talk or you're speaking to a large group, there's some implicit baseline. Don't show up to this talk by a Nobel winning physicist unless you've had some basic physics knowledge or you're going to be completely lost. And that talk itself, is that for the general public? Well, they assume you know something, you've heard the term physics, you might know who Newton is, versus, well, this is for undergraduate physics majors who have had quantum mechanics and other deeper studies, but still not going to be at quite the PhD level. So there's usually some implicit understanding. If you're doing a one-off talk, you just go with whatever that baseline is that's implied or explicit about the minimum understanding the audience has. And then you go and communicate and potentially communicate in different styles. And here again, if that Nobel laureate is speaking to the physics undergrads, he can use certain technical terms because, well, they've all been studying physics and they know what these terms means. He, he can say Schrodinger equation. Everyone goes, yep, okay, we've all studied that. The general populace will have to explain what that means. You, but you may, if you've got a broad audience, and we see this with politicians, the way they communicate, they will use certain different styles, different approaches, because they know they're communicating to everyone. You have to hit a broader cross-section of your audience. So they'll use different techniques. If you have multiple engagements, if, for example, you're a teacher, a learning professional, where it's not just a one and done, then, of course, you can take breaks between sessions to get feedback, to see what's resonating. You can even break into small groups because in the smaller groups and the discussion groups, this is where I speaking to a hundred people, I can't feel what each person's getting. When we break into groups of five people, in a group of five people, we can start to figure out, oh, you're struggling with this idea. Oh, you think of it this way. Okay. And we can more customize to individual needs before we come back into a larger group. Asking for feedback is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, I have some young folks working on my team who are new to the to um, creating courses and creating material, and they're starting to branch into that, like, I'm going to reach out to the subject matter and ask for feedback. And we're trying to teach them some skills on how to ask for effective, actionable feedback, the right kinds of stuff. Um, do you have any tips for that? Because that's a whole different kind of communication strategy, but just as important. Feedback's interesting because it is incumbent on the person asking to ask the right questions, but also many people aren't good at giving good feedback about being focused in the advice they offer. Many people, you ask for feedback and they say, um, yeah, I don't know, that was good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks. That's not super helpful. What specifically was good? What was less good? People aren't good at that. So as a person asking for feedback, you want to help guide the person whose input you're getting with more directed questions. You can start with general things. If you don't know anything else, you can say, give me three adjectives that would describe this. It's three adjectives, right? Doesn't even say good or bad or anything, but starts to get the person thinking about that was energetic or impactful or slow whatever those adjectives is, starts to give you some sense of how they perceive it. You can ask pointed questions. How is the duration? Was it moving too fast? Was the level of content okay? Would you go more or less? Who do you think would value most or get the most value from what we've created? 
how could we tweak it to make it more valuable to a different type of audience? So you can be more directed, but you can start with general questions. But for general questions, don't just say, say, what do you think? Guide how you want that general response. If you could sum up for me in one sentence what I did, how would you do it? Right. So give them a concrete format to give that response in. I love that so much because I cannot tell you how many times, hey, how am I doing? Or hey, how did this go? And I've even received the, I don't know, how do you think that went? Which is like the complete <laughs> wrong answer. Like that is, doesn't make me want to go ask for feedback. So I, this idea of the strategy around being very specific of the feedback that we're looking for is is amazing because it really puts it back on me as the person asking for it. What do I want to learn? How do I want to grow? And you're right. It gives that individual who's going to give me that feedback, whether it's my audience or whether it's my boss or whoever, the opportunity to provide really um, relevant information that's going to be helpful for me. So yeah, the question, how am I doing, is a, is a relevant question. It's a good question. A lot of people are going to ask that. But to say, how did I do on this last project when it came to timing? Well, I can give you an answer to that. Here's here's what it is, and here's how you can get better. Fantastic. I am so glad you shared that with our audience today. That's awesome. It's not bad to start with that general, how was it? Because some people can give directed answers. That's a nice broad question that I'm not biasing you. But if you get that vague, unhelpful response, that's where you can be more directed in terms of how you want the response or what particular things you want to drill into. My experience, though, when I get the vague response is I just fall back and punt like I'm done, like I'm not going to ask feedback anymore. I'm not. I had, I had somebody who like had joined my team and uh, I absolutely loved it. Like the, our very first one on one, they were like, hey, just so you know, this is how I like to give feedback. This is how I like to receive feedback. When I receive feedback, I need it to be actionable. And here are the ways I like to be actionable. Pop, 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 pop. And I was just blown away. I was just like okay, that's awesome. And so like, it's like one of those things where it completely like changed how, how I gave feedback and how I talked to the rest of my team because this person was like, here's how I like to get feedback. Here's how I give feedback. And so like afterward, like I set up all these meetings with the rest of my team, like, okay, real quick. Hey, how do you like to give feedback? Have I been hitting, you know, have I been hitting that nail on the head? What do I need to adjust? And yeah, no, a hundred percent like real good and actionable feedback can be so rare. And that when you finally give it to people, like they're hungry for it. And that is a fantastic thing everyone should do. A few years ago, a variant of this, people talked about readme files for themselves, right? I think of it like your own personal user manual. Whenever I show up to a new company, whatever I'm brought in, I sit down with my team, I have a big meeting, I introduce my background, myself, but I also talk about my style of work. And I try to do this with anyone I hire as well. Consider as well, not just feedback. And I've done this where I say, here's how I take feedback. I know, for example, we'll talk about feedback for a moment and then I'll get to the general idea. I know I can get a little defensive. I've learned that about myself. And so I've said, this is how I take feedback. And if you're gonna give me feedback, just know I might come off, I might appear a little defensive, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to sit there and listen. I'm not going to respond because I will feel that emotion rising in me. So I'm just going to listen and not respond. 
but then I'm going to go think about it. I'm going to sleep on it. And I'll probably come back to you the next day with follow-up questions or other thoughts. And that's how I best like to receive feedback. And so that's something I've done for a while. But we can do that not just with feedback, but with larger work styles. Consider, for example, there are the bosses who say, look, I just want you to go do this and keep me in the loop. So if something's coming up, you know, some big decision, just pop by and say, hey, listen, here's something that came up and here's what I'm going to do to address it. Boss goes, okay, great. Thanks for keeping me in the loop. But a different boss may prefer a style of when there is a big challenge, I want you to come up to me, tell me the challenge and give me options and together we'll figure it out. I have to say, hey, uncover this, here's a challenge, here's the A, B, and C option. What do you think we should do? And still the employee might think, okay, I know boss is going to choose B and I'm going to come up with A and C. I'm going to do the too hot, too cold. She's going to pick just right, but she needs to feel she has to pick it. Okay, great. That's her style. She wants to be part of the decision-making process. Because if you just said to that style of boss, oh, I did this, she's going to feel cut out. On the other hand, if she's the first type and you bring her, hey, here's three options, she's going to think, oh, why can't you just decide this? Like you're coming to me for every little decision. I don't like this. We all have these styles of how we work. And the more we can be explicit about them, the more we can better engage with our subordinates, our bosses, our coworkers to be effective. I love that idea of being explicit. And I've learned over the years, it was like therapy, me hearing you say like, I will be emotional at first, but I will process it and come back to you. I've learned that about myself as well and had to make peace with it. But um, I've learned that uh, I'm not always as good at reading people as I thought I was. And so I've told people when I get to know them, I may ask a lot of questions and you may tell me something and I may ask you to clarify just because I'm not always sure. Like I'm just not as good a communicator as I thought I was. So, you know, be patient with me. I promise I'm just trying to really understand what you're asking or saying. Um, and since I've started setting that expectation with people, let me tell you, communication's a lot easier. <laughs> it's, it's a lot smoother. I knew one woman who would squint a lot. And so at first, that, that facial expression, you think, oh, you're not following what I'm saying. And she explained it was just her vision. And that helped her visually focus on the person to whom she's speaking, but she totally followed it. And so we just had to adjust for her. Don't, don't read that facial reaction as what it generally means with other people. And knowing that created better interactions between us, between her and most people in the future. You know, I, 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 I totally relate to that. Uh, we, just before the show started, I know Scott had made a joke. Oh, Daniel's rolling his eyes my thinking face is not like a very engaging face. And so like, I'll make this face when I'm thinking about stuff really hard. And I've had so many like teammates and leaders come up to me and be like, Hey, I, I know we were talking about this during the meeting and I, I saw that it really affected you. And I just wanted to come by and like, make sure you're okay and talk about how we can, you know, like work through this. And I just be like, I'm sorry, what? Like, Oh no, I saw, I saw the face you were making and just be like, Oh no. Oh goodness. No, I'm sorry. I was just thinking about it really hard and making sure I understood how everything connected. <laughs> and you know, it's gotten to the point now where like when like when I, I talk to a new leader for the first time or I talk to a new person on the team, like I've just got to like lay that like, hey, just FYI, I do not have a pretty thinking face. Uh, so like if you say something and like I'm really thinking on it, I'm going to make a face that's kind of like 
where I'm going to screw my face all up and squint my eyes. And it's going to look kind of like I'm confused and angry at the same time. I'm just really thinking about something and I'm not confused. Maybe I'm confused, but I'm definitely not angry. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times like I've made the given that speech and then like, you know, a week, two weeks, maybe three weeks later, like make that face while I'm thinking about something. Be like, oh, there it is. <laughs> be like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm thinking. Keep talking. I'm listening. <laughs> so, Mark, in general, you do public speaking. You do in-person speaking, but you've also you're, you're a writer. Um, you do a lot of prepared materials. When you sit down to to prepare those different kinds of um, resources, are you thinking about like I know. I know my face is going to help people or get in the way in this way versus when it's just written, it's a different experience. Um, do you have different skills that you, you fall back on to help with those? Not as broadly as perhaps I should. I do, as you know, do a lot of speaking. I even started the past few years doing stand-up comedy just to push my own speaking capabilities. You're a brave man, Mark. <laughs> Stand-up is a lot harder than normal public speaking. The timing is so much more subtle and how you phrase things, small changes. We all as public speakers, we're used to, I might want to tweak that, I might want to say it slightly differently. But in the moment, a lot of our utterances tend to be not perfectly rehearsed down to the word or syllable, unless it's some key phrase. When it comes to comedy, Boy, that really, you have to get each pause, each syllable, each thing exactly right. And these small changes can make a big difference. So that's been really helpful for my speaking. I'll do some improv as well. Not as much improv. I hope to do more. But when it comes to writing, for writing my book and writing my blog, I actually just think of it as speaking. In fact, when I wrote my book, I literally just visualized people in front of me whether it was my students, whether it was my team, whether it's other people I was explaining this to, I just pictured that person in front of me and said, okay, what would I say to this person and started typing? I, I know there are some tools where I could just speak and have it record. I still prefer the act of physically typing. And that's how I, I would begin it. And in fact, for any aspiring writers, it's helpful if you've gone out and talked about it before. One thing that I've had readers tell me came through well in the book was that I would say something, they'd read it on a page, and I'd say, well, I had a question, but I turned the page, and there was the answer to the question. Because I've talked about for so long, I've done this, and I know when I say this, here are the next three questions I will get, and so I knew how to immediately address it. The talks had had enough field testing, enough feedback that that could go into my writing to make it comprehensive and useful. I love that. Dan, do you think you're going to start putting your people through improv classes to improve their, <laughs> their performance? Uh, I don't I don't know how many people I'd have left. <laughs> improv, by the way, one of the chapters in the book is on negotiating. It has long been a practice to for some people to do some improv training for negotiating because there's actually some similar skills in both disciplines. So I've even, I've had just a tiny amount of improv training and it maybe helped my negotiations a little. I had a lot more formal negotiation training, which probably had a bigger impact on that. Well, thinking on your toes, maybe being able to speak on your toes and do so 
um, coherently, I think is really important. And that's where I think the uh, improv does that because you, you don't get much time to think about what you want to say, and yet you need to be able to deliver a message in a, in a, in a coherent, relevant way very, very quickly. Um, the last thing you want to do, whether I'm teaching, instructing, or even in a business meeting, is have that deer in the headlights look, right? The Scott, what do you think? Um, could you repeat the question because I wasn't paying attention to you? Or uh, it, it, and maybe that's just me covering up because I don't know what the answer is going to be. I don't know what to, what to say. So I think that's really, really relevant and cool. You know, one of the things that for I those think... Who, go ahead. I was going to say, for those who don't want to do improv, certainly just being comfortable with the material from having talked about, taught it, understood it, it's great because when you know it inside and out, no matter what question you throw at me, hey, I know this stuff. I know how to think through it. I've dealt with this question or something close enough before. Improv in particular, you do some of that. It also pushes you further. So whereas at Toastmasters, for example, if you do the Toastmasters speaking training, they're going to have you give some impromptu speeches, but I believe they tend to be on topics that you might already know. Whereas improv, the whole idea is you throw out some situation to me. I have no idea what that's going to be ahead of time, and I just have to roll with it and really go in a direction I wasn't expecting as opposed to, I know we're going to talk about this. I don't know exactly how, but I know the space overall. It's familiar territory. I'm going to somewhere I've been before, so I don't feel lost. So subtle difference, but improv helps and certainly just knowing your material inside and out and practicing it and just understanding it is going to help you be better, even in dynamic situations. One of the things that I really appreciated in the book is this idea of like, we tend to think in education and in learning that we're all a bunch of extroverted people, which isn't true. Like there are, there are plenty of either introverts and or learned extroverts. I am a learned extrovert, right? So deep down inside, I'm an introvert, but I can hang with the extroverts, man. And I do a really good job at it. Right. So talk to me about, I'm an, I'm an introvert. Um, kind of shy, kind of quiet. Uh, how, how can we think about or reframe our communication so I can be successful both with my audience but also in the business community? There are different definitions I've seen for introvert, extrovert. The one I tend to subscribe to is where we draw our energy. Do you find, oh, I'm, I'm with a large crowd of people and this is just exciting and energizing versus, wow, so many people, this is draining. I need to be by myself to recharge. By that definition, I am an introvert. I happen to be an extroverted introvert. In fact, pre-COVID, I used to have a lot of large gatherings. I would have 50, 60, 70 people in my apartment for, for parties. But during that time, at a certain point, I would go downstairs to check in with the doorman. And this did three things. First, just check, make sure everything's going okay. Second, good chance to bribe the doorman, bring down some food or drinks. Always keep your doorman happy. But also it got me out of that really crowded apartment. I needed a couple minute break from being surrounded by scores of people, even though these were friends of mine who I invited to my place. I needed to get away from it, even at my own parties. So we can be introvert or extroverted in terms of who we are, but behave in different ways 
by choice or even by preference. I love socializing with other people, but I need that downtime. Now at work, when we think about introversion versus extroversion, that often comes out with how we engage with other people. And we tend to be a extroverted bias community. The business community tends to prefer extroversion. Our leaders tend to be more extroverted and the nature of how we engage in our meetings tend to be pro-extrovert. So often at meetings, someone will say, oh, hey, here's an issue, here's a topic, let's talk about. And the introvert wants to say, okay, let me just think quietly for a few minutes. This isn't necessarily pure introvert, but this is more thinking approach. I just want to think quietly and go through things in my head. Other people who like to think out loud, who I think often tend to be extroverts, but not always, they say, okay, well, hey, here's an idea off the top of my head. And then you spit back another idea. Now we're, we're talking, going back and forth. And the other people are saying, no, quiet, quiet, everyone. I just want to think. We have to recognize these different styles. So one thing you can do is to say, we are going to have almost quiet time before we talk about it. Now, this could come from, here's the agenda for the meeting. I want to talk about this topic. Please bring your thoughts. And the people who prefer that quiet reflection at first can say, oh, good, I'm going to take 10 minutes before the meeting to think through my ideas. Or if you didn't do that ahead of time, something came up, say, everyone, we're going to sit in silence for two or three minutes, gather your thoughts. And the people who like that approach are going to sit there and maybe make some notes and think through it. The more outspoken people, they're going to say, oh, come on, I want to to jump in, I want to speak. Well, you know, hold your horses for a few minutes. Because once we open it up, you'll be speaking a lot and the other person's going to say, all right, now I'm, I'm trying to keep up with it. I, I want to go back to the quiet. But by incorporating both approaches, we bring out the best in both styles of thinking. I like that. I like that a lot. I, I, I can't tell you, as an, I'm an extrovert all the way. And uh, like, it's taken me a long time to learn the difference between I've goofed and now no one is responding to me versus I've said something and uh, the group of individuals I'm talking to are introverts and they're pondering and they're thinking and they're processing. And if I, I'm patient and I can wait a moment, the conversation will pick back up, responses will come in. Uh, it was something I began like baking into meetings, like, okay, cool. This is what we're going to talk about. Is everybody prepped? Does every, everybody need five minutes? Like after like the opening spiel. So I knew I would give people time to talk so I could have better meetings thinking about extrovert versus introvert. So I love that. That's fantastic. And Dan, I'm the opposite. I'm the person who needs a couple minutes to think about it. And I've learned that in order to keep people like Dan calm, I tell them, give me just a minute. I'm thinking. And it helps a lot. (laughs) That goes back to earlier. This is my style. My style is give me a minute of silence. And by being explicit, we create a better engagement. I think that's really important to be vulnerable and be fair about it. Because I think there's unsaid expectations around how people need to communicate and how they need to engage. And it's more than fair to say, hey, I just need a minute to think about it. Can you come back to me? I don't know anybody that would be like, no, give it to me now, right? I mean, you just set people up for failure, right? So fantastic stuff. Yeah, I, uh, I actually love that we use these messaging tools now at work because I get that time and it doesn't feel forced. Um, 
So I know it drives a lot of people nuts. They're like, I wish I could just walk to people's desk. And I'm like, I'm kind of glad you're not just sitting on my desk waiting for me to respond to you. I'm glad I have this time to think about what I'm going to say, try it, look at it, change my mind and write it again. So, Well, you know, in the room, I think that's important. I would love to spend a few minutes talking about it. So as an educator facilitator, right? Get those people that you find are, oh, well, there's there's Joanne and she's in the back of the room and she's not participating. And I want to ensure that um, that she does because we want a safe environment and I want everybody to participate because when I do, I get better results, right? And so one of the things that I think is really important in that um, is to, you know, call her name, right? Hey, Joanne, pause. You know, what, what do you think? Um, but when we get that, you know, moment of silence of, gee, I don't know, or whatever, you know, passing the ball off to somebody else might be good things. Or, or what are some things that we could continue to think about to make that, because our heart's in the right place, right? I, I want everybody to participate. I, I want to hear what she has to say, but I want to make sure I do it in a way that is uplifting and encourages participation and is safe versus one that might be borderline embarrassing. Assuming that Joanne's not someone you just met today and you're not going to see again tomorrow, assuming it's someone on your team where you'll have regular interactions and can get to know each other, I would even suggest if you notice it, first have a conversation outside that meeting. Now here, it's, it's subtle. Maybe you've worked with her for a year. You know you can call on her if she just says pass. Okay, let her pass. But it's understanding why is she not engaging? And it could be anything from her mother was just diagnosed with cancer that morning and she is just unfocused and she's not going to be able to focus. She certainly doesn't want to say in the room, oh, by the way, here's a medical issue in my family. And this is just like she she in that moment can't respond and she might even be off for the rest of the week by off. I mean, unfocused and not as engaged. And we've all had times like that. It could be. She had a work project that just sucked up her time and the time she was going to spend reading the notes before coming to the meeting, she didn't do and she feels unprepared. It might even be this is a particular topic she's not comfortable in. She might feel a little imposter syndrome. She doesn't want to participate on this particular topic. Or it could be there was a comment earlier that sounded innocuous, but it kind of rubbed her the wrong way. There could be lots of different reasons not all of which she might be okay being explicit about. And so for some of these, as a manager, we would want to engage her perhaps in a safer environment to understand what the issue was. If she says, look, hey, it's a family medical issue. Oh, okay, I get it. And give her that space and understand the rest of the week she might be unfocused. If she says, I just don't feel confident, we got into the budget and I'm really just not comfortable when it gets to financial analysis, oh, well, maybe that becomes part of her development program. Maybe you can work to develop her skills there. So you're going to reflect deeper. Now, obviously, if you've worked with Joanne for a while and she's normally engaged and she's just being very quiet, it's reasonable to say, hey, Joanne, do you have any thoughts on this? But equally important is that she can say pass and that is acceptable in the moment. Mark, I assume a lot of people and I know I'm one of them, have gone through times in their life where they thought, I'm a really good communicator. And then they get in a new situation, they go, 
okay, either I need new or different skills for this situation, or I was never as good a communicator as I thought. Um, what are some ways that we can help recognize one where we have an opportunity to grow and two, what we can do about it apart from going and buying Mark's book, which would also be a really good way to start, I assume. <laughs> Great question. Certainly that would be, although it's interesting communication of all the chapters I cover. Communication is probably the broadest. And I obviously in one chapter can only get to a narrow part of a very broad subject. In fact, you could buy an entire book on communication and it only covers a very tiny part of this incredibly broad area. So what we want to do is first, if we stumble in these areas to reflect and say, wow, why didn't that seem to work, right? What went wrong? And to start to understand, I'm reminded of a story I heard about Robin Williams. He was doing a comedy routine to an audience in Russia back in the 80s. And he felt that he was bombing and he's done this material before. He thought it was great. But back in those days, the way you would transmit to Russia is his video went up to a satellite and then back down to Russia. And then the response went up to the satellite and back to the US. And you had perhaps a one second delay to go through the, to go up to the satellite and then another one second down. So you had a four second delay plus any additional delay of just English was not their native language. And so whereas he would tell a joke and get lots of laughs here in the US, there would be a delay. He'd tell a joke and dead silence. And he'd look at the faces sitting there, not doing anything and thinking, oh my God, these jokes are terrible. But then of course the laughter would come seconds later. In fact, almost out of phase where, wait, wait, why, why are they laughing now? I'm in the middle of a joke. Now, this was a mechanical issue, right? And he had to recognize, oh, here, there's a mechanical challenge. And he had to adjust for it. In fact, I'll, I'll share a, a comedy variant myself. And then we'll get, it's not all about comedy and, and mechanics. The, there's a comedy show that I do every New Year's. This past year, as we moved into 2021, we were virtual. And we had the challenge in that we did over Zoom. So one of the problems is, well, if everyone has their microphone on, you get cell phones and dogs and noise that just disrupts the joke. But if everyone has their audio off, humor is the type of thing you need to hear other people laugh. And that helps cue you that it's time for me to laugh. This is, in fact, one of the reasons that shows had laugh tracks. And so we had to find the right balance. We had what we thought of as our plants. As a couple of people, we said, okay, we know you're, you've all checked your microphones off. You don't have little kids or pets at home. So we're going to keep your audio on, be very conscientious, but this way others can hear you laugh. And that's how we adjusted for it. Now, I just gave two mechanical examples and both with comedy. Obviously, you asked a broader question, but it's getting that feedback and saying, why didn't this work as well? What was going on? Maybe it was mechanical, but maybe it was these analogies didn't work. Maybe I'm used to speaking to college students and now I'm speaking to middle school students and the words I use, the analogies I use, they just don't resonate as well. Perhaps that was it. Maybe it's just duration and expectation. I'm used to giving hour long talks and this audience is used to 15 minute long talks. So of course they got bored by minute 17. But getting feedback from your audience, from other people watching, 
The other thing to do is watch great speakers. Or I'll say great communicators in general. I learned early on how to be effective at whiteboards because my manager, one of my very first managers, a guy named John Christensen, was great at the whiteboard. Most people, when they go up to a whiteboard, they just start scribbling things up there. And I noticed that, you know, he seems to be good at this. And then I said, okay, I want to understand why. And I watched what he did at the whiteboard. And I watched how he did things. And I realized he didn't just jump right into the middle of the whiteboard and scribble things. He recognized he had an idea of what he was going to put up there. So he planned ahead of time. I'm going to start on the left. And I'm going to put this here and this there. I'm going to leave space for it. He used different colors. Most people pick up a pen and that's it. That's the pen they used. He intentionally switched colors, perhaps for old and new pros and cons. And so I started to be more conscientious in how I'm going to use the whiteboard. So by watching other great communicators, I say communicators, not speakers, we can start to ask ourselves, why is this person great? Do the analysis yourself or ask other people, hey, Scott, why is Abby such a great communicator? I know she's great. I can't tell why. What do you see? And then we can start to analyze, recognize, and begin to develop and incorporate. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about uh, as far as Abby is concerned, but I get the reference. <laughs> I'm Thanks just totally a lot, kidding. Scott. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> you are awesome. You don't open a door like that and not walk all the way through. Um, Mark, this is fantastic. And I, there's just so many great things in your book, The Career Toolkit, and we'll put a link uh, to it in the show notes. Um, as we begin to uh, wrap things up here, what are some ideas around communication that you think are really important for our audience that you didn't get a chance to talk about? I'll give you a few moments to talk about those right here. I will simply say public speaking tends to be more common than we think. Most people think of public speaking as I am going to stand up on stage and have an audience. I'm going to formally talk for this period of time. But in fact, public speaking happens all the time. Interviews are a form of public speaking. When you say, tell me about this project, I'm going to, in that moment, give a version of public speaking. Now, I might be seated, not standing. We're certainly not on a stage. It's in an office. It's one-on-one. -on -one. But for that moment, I'm going to go in for about 60 seconds to give, here's what happened. And the skills that I would use as a public speaker, maybe not a lot of big hand movements or using my space the way I went on stage, but other techniques about how I might present it from tone to body language to even just how I think through presenting it, those apply for those 60 seconds before we move back into more of perhaps a dialogue. So developing public speaking skills will help you even if you are never going to set foot on a stage. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, great chat today. I love learning stuff. I'm a huge learning nerd. Uh, Mark, could you do me a favor and uh, let our audience know how they could connect with you? If you go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com, there you can learn more about the book, including where to buy it. You can reach out to me. You can follow me on social media. There's also a free app available from the Android and iPhone stores with a lot of the content from the book. That's linked from the website. There is a blog. I put articles every week. And there is a resources page where I have some free downloads for how you can develop these skills for yourself and your organizations. 
links to other tools online, as well as a number of other books if you want to go deeper on these topics. And so all of this is at the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. It's good stuff, folks. Be sure to check it out. And like I said, we'll go ahead and throw those links into the show notes. Really appreciate your time, Mark. Danielson. Yes, Scott. Could you do me a solid and let our listeners know how they can communicate with us? Absolutely. All right, party people. If you haven't already, hit us up on email at learningnerdscast at gmail.com. Join in the discussion. Ask us questions. Tell us what your turkey day plans are. We'd love to know. If you're on Facebook, you can find us at Learning Nerds. And lastly, for all you Instagram party people, we're Fab Learning Nerds. Thanks, Dan. Hey, everyone. Uh, Do me a favor. Go ahead and uh, hit that subscribe button. Share this show with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. If you're getting our show from a podcatcher like iTunes or Stitcher, please leave us a review. It's one of the best ways that we can find out how we're doing, how we can improve, and help our show get out to other folks. And with that, I'm Scott. I'm Dan. I'm Abby. And I'm Mark. And we're your fabulous learning nerds, and we are out. Thanks for listening to the Fabulous Learning Nerds. You know, there are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment of offerings. If you're, if you're thinking of giving it a try, if you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.